I want to do two sermons uh, today and next week on really around this same issue, when you don't see eye to eye, um, when you don't quite see eye to eye. Uh, today is really when you might feel that you don't see quite eye to eye with wider culture, and next week is very much when you don't see eye to eye with internal culture, when you don't see eye to eye with other Christians. And how do you make sense of those situations? And what sort of people do we become in the midst of those situations? For those of us of a certain generation, and um, we welcome Liz into that generation, who had a milestone birthday this weekend. Uh, today, she does remarkably well for 70. Um, <laughs> we grew up in a, in, in a, in a society that's changed and is asking questions of itself and having conversations uh, internally in culture uh, about things and in, about issues that, to be honest, 30, 40 years ago, we just didn't have. I was listening to the radio this morning, and uh, the woman who is the head of Stonewall um, was speaking. She's a Christian, a devout Christian, and she talked about how her faith and her job um, impacts her work with Stonewall, who works with the LGBTQI um, community. And um, uh, the interviewer was asking questions about, is it more difficult now for having you know, the conversation between uh, the LGBTQI um, uh, folks and the church? And she said, no, actually, it's much more difficult internally to have the conversation even. So in other words, it feels on one level that when we start to talk about issues that as a society, we find it quite difficult to have that conversation. But society's changing very fast. There's, uh, I know, a, a young teacher who's teaching a class of children who are 10 years old, and one of them is transitioning from um, transitioning gender. And this is a, a situation that many of us would never, ever encountered before. And it's kind of like, how do we, how do we handle this with grace and poise? <laughs> How do we handle a conversation that's happening in athletics about testosterone and intersex and women and men? It's just like, for some of us, this feels like an alien world that we, we're, we're not sure where all the kind of, where do we stand on this sort of stuff? And sometimes as Christians, we really don't help ourselves. For in, I think sometimes, out of the best intention and sometimes out of fear, we react badly and we respond in a way that doesn't help people. It doesn't help people see the beauty of Jesus. And it doesn't help people to see the grace or the width of mercy that we sang about before. It just fails like you're the sectarian group that's somehow looking down on other people doesn't make it easy for people to join. doesn't make it easy for people to be part of you. It doesn't e make it easy for people to hear the grace of God with you. And so what I wanted to do this morning is, in part, not to say everything about everything, because that would be stupid to even attempt. But earlier in the year... Um, or even at the beginning of last year, when someone knew, someone in the church here, knew that I was going to be dealing with issues about wisdom, about how do you deal with the, the difficult issues that need wisdom, someone said, can you help us, this was the direct request, can you help us, help other, can you help us 
explain where we stand to other people who don't agree with us. Now, actually, that is the big issue that all of us are called to on any number of issues. All right, It's kind of like what you're doing all the time. How do you explain who you are and what you believe? You know, I, uh, from time to time, um, when we moved into this new house, um, my neighbor uh, was chatting to her and she said, there's a lot of coming and going to your house. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's the drugs. Um, <laughs> she says, there's a lot of coming and going. I said, yeah, I belong to church. And um, I said, it's just church folks, sorry about them parking in front of your car. And, um, and she said, oh. And then we talked about the trees. Um, and, and I think um, it can be, we can be seen to be quite odd because we've got a church. And because there's all these people who keep coming and going. She has no idea how weird I am. <laughs> she thinks I'm weird because I'm not church. She thinks I'm weird because we've got people tramping in and out of the house. She has no idea what I believe about God and creation and consummation. She has no idea what I believe about the cross. She has no idea about the Bible and the fact that pretty much every day I'll sit down at some stage or other and, and read it and think that the God of the universe, and even to say this out loud, except in church, sounds really weird, might communicate with me. You say that in some places and you will be sectioned. She has no idea that I pray actually expecting not only to be heard, but to be answered, and that I might be guided. In other words, and I, I say all that actually meaningfully, that we, as a people, sometimes we forget we're part of a bigger story that actually is at odds with the general story of our culture. How do you explain all that? Well, the temptation is not to. Because if you knew, you'd think I'm weirder, you'd think I'm weirder than actually you already think. But there's times when people will ask you about how do you see this? What do you make of that? What do you believe about this, that and the other? So what I want to do today is something very, very specific. But let me just clear the ground for a moment if I can. Number one, Christians disagree about uh, LGBTQI issues. And people in our church disagree about that. I don't see it as a salvation issue. I think it's fine to disagree. I spend a lot of time with people who um, have a different perspective on that from of their own lives, of their church life, and everything else. They are still my brother and my sister in Christ. And that's the primary relationship I have with them. They don't have to agree with me on everything in order for me to be able to say, yes, I think, I think... God likes you. There is a sort of a, a version of Christianity where we, grow, we sort of paint tighter and tighter circles around ourselves until in the end we're on, the only one there. Christians disagree about this sort of stuff, and that's okay. My second sort of, put my card on the table is, it's not about issues, it's about people. And I think that whenever you start, whenever someone asks you a question, it's never really about an issue. There's always a story. I'll give you another one, a different issue. Someone who at the time was part of our church um, 
took me aside and said, um, I, I, I believe that all religions lead to God. I believe that all religions lead to... I, I disagree, with, she said to me, I disagree with you about the fact that you said Jesus is the, the, the way to salvation. Now, the danger when someone says that to you is um, that you think it's a theological question. And so you, someone like me can engage in a theological answer. But actually, for her, it wasn't a theological question. What happened was when she was 15, her best friend committed suicide and said, I'm not a believer. And she was trying to work out, how do I make sense of that in the light of eternity? In other words, issues are rarely about issues. They're normally about people. And I think it's knowing that that gives us a posture, a tone, if you will, a texture to how we have conversations, rather than just wading in with knee-jerk theological position. Whatever your theological position. And it's interesting because on the one hand, it's easy to see, well, when we disagree about the, ish, the, the, the sexual identity issue, that what we've got to do is make sure that we don't go in, for some of us, with our more conservative uh, guns blazing. But it's also important for those who are more inclusive not to judge others who aren't, because actually the person who isn't may also have their own story, their own issue that they're dealing with, their own personal cost. <coughs> we must protect in society from discrimination and persecution. The T, I think it was the TUC this week, wasn't it, that talked about actually we want to protect against discrimination and persecution. And Christians should be on the front foot of that and go, we don't want to discriminate and we don't want to persecute. The overall, I, this is my card on my table, the overall biblical record is one of homo heterosexuality in committed relationships. Regardless of where you might stand theologically, I think most people go, yeah, we think that's true. It's actually the, the argument is, what do you do with that? But the overall biblical record is one of heterosexuality in committed relationships. The norm is that marriage is biblical. Weddings are cultural, by the way. Marriage is biblical. Weddings are cultural. There's nothing in the Bible about having a stag do in Magaluf. <laughs> <coughs> or the bride being late. There's nothing. All the stuff we call a wedding, 15,000 pounds plus, has got very little to do with the Bible. But the committed relationship's got everything to do with it. The idea that I'm with one person and I give myself fully to that one person. And the third, the last thing I want to say, just to sort of like clear the ground and then get going, is to say the biblical record suggests that we were created good as a universe, that we are all broken, that we all are invited to be renewed and redeemed, and we will be made glorious, and we live in between all of these truths. Created and loved, broken, and all of us are broken. And, um, and yet all are invited to be redeemed, and all will be made glorious. We're not there yet, but we live in between this. 
So, let me explain again what I want to do with this particular 20 minutes I've got left, really. I want to say that if you hold that to be, if you hold that to be true, how do you explain it? So it may be that you're sitting there going, I'm, I'm up here, I still disagree about this, or I'm not certain in my mind, or I'm kind of open, and that's fine. And we can have a conversation about that another day. That's not today's discussion. It's like the question that I was asked was, if you hold to that, how do you explain it in a society that doesn't see that? And what I want to do, and I'm hoping this, I'm really hoping and praying this is going to be helpful is to suggest the perspectives that we can take and the different responses. And as I said before, it's important to know which response you're making at any one time. So I'm going to start with... Oh, he came earlier than I expected. That's because I skipped my notes. I'm still on page one. So how do you explain? Well, not like him. Now, you may or may not know who he is. He's an Australian rugby player. And on a social media feed, he was asked, um, his name's Israel, um, I think his name's Faru, I think is how you say his name, but he's a Christian. Uh, and on a social media site, he was asked, so what do you think about gay people? And what he did was he responded with half a verse from Galatians 5 that said, uh, the sexual immoral, blah, 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 will not, um, will not enter the kingdom of God. Um, and he then went on to say, so it's hell. And the consequence of doing that was a, a literal storm amongst rugby authorities. Because in, as a public employer and as a public-facing organisation, they had the problem then of how do you deal with someone who actually has brought a theological, their theological position into the public space. And so what they did is they sacked him. Now, some Christians then threw up their hands and said, it's persecution. I don't think it was. I think, actually, it was a massive mistake on his part. You're being asked on social media, what do you think? Social media is probably the worst media response to do something that you want to sound nuanced. You know that even... Uh, sort of like, a, a, you know, in a very mundane way, when someone that's really close to you sends you a text, and then you send a text back, and they take it the wrong way. <laughs> and it's kind of like, I was only asking if you could get bread. <laughs> and, your, and your text is, have we run out of bread? And that's taken as, hang on, are you criticizing me for not getting bread? <laughs> text messages, social media is the last place that some of these things need to happen. It's why a few years ago when someone sent me a text message to say, what is your position on same-sex marriage? Our response is, we, our first position on this is, we never have this conversation via text. <laughs> That's our position. That's our first position. So what did he do? Well, he took a text that was written to Christians, Galatians, a text that was read out of context and made the bluntest of responses. And because of that, he didn't help anybody think the gospel sounds like good news. Now, to be fair to him, he's 24, 25 years old, so he's not, an, he's not that old. 
all right? And I don't know about you, but I remember when I was 24 and 25, I did some stupid things too. And just because it's in the public domain, don't make us say that when you're... And, 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 and I'm not criticising you if you are 24. It's just, Tom, you can do a whole stack of things that are stupid when you're 24. I know you're not even 24 yet, but when you get there... <laughs> when you get there, Tom, just do a stack of stupid things. Because when you're 54, you, people say you should know better. But it's indicative of a, a sort of a way of also where people are trying to catch you out. So how do you respond? Well, the first, and I don't know if this is helpful, but think about buying a birthday card for someone. I spend hours in front of card shops sometimes, walking up and down, thinking, I just want to buy a card. I just want to say happy birthday. Do you know what I mean? It's like, happy birthday. Have a nice day. But you're, you're left, so I'm buying a card for Maggie, and I've got to think, pink, balloons, padded, that's not me, joke. Happy birthday, old lady. <laughs> Do I want to say that? Is that going to go down well? How, how is she at the moment? Is she in a good place, a bad place, or in a different place? Um, is, is that going to help? Um, to my darling wife uh, with flowers and, uh, you know, and, and some sop, she's going to go, you just ran into the shop and grabbed the first thing you could see that said wife. And so I, I kind of spend time wanting to get the right card because actually... I've got a relationship, I know what I want to say, but I've got to get the right way of expressing that. It takes time. If that analogy helps you, that's what we're involved with. So how do we make sense when we differ, when we differ from society? Society says essentially, on the whole, society says about LGBTQI issues is just embrace it, it's not a problem. And if actually that's where you stand, there isn't a problem uh, about how you respond to it, because it's like, just, that's where we stand. But if actually you're saying, no, we want to hold to the norm being heterosexual committed relationships within, uh, relationships within committed relationships, how do you make sense of that? And the theological argument, as I've suggested, is that creation for redemption and glorified, that we were created and our sexual drive is a massive part of God's good creation. Sometimes it can sound, if we're not careful, that Christians are obsessed with sex. We're not. Actually, theologically, we just think it's brilliant. <laughs> There's the irony. Now, I know that sometimes we've been portrayed, and sometimes we portray ourselves as repressed and frigid and uncertain, but actually, of all people, we ought to be the ones waving the banner going, do you know what? Sex is brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. It's part of God's good creation. But it's also massively powerful. It's powerful because it creates. The biblical vision is this, that sex creates something that wasn't there before. It takes two humans and creates one unity. And that's why when it all goes wrong, it hurts so much. That's why I would want to argue that when it really gets disordered and men rape women, it is such an abomination because you've taken the best and you've used it as a weapon. The creation story is one of goodness, of something creative, of an identity that's at peace. But the biblical story also goes and says everything gets distorted. The way things are at work, 
the reason for some of you work is so very difficult is theologically because actually you weren't, it wasn't supposed to be like this. When you cry out and go, I'm, I'm hating work on a Sunday night, I get this sinking feeling when I go think about Monday morning. In a sense, what you're expressing is what the biblical early story talked about of the fall, thorns and thistles. I've got to work, but it's so hard. When you're at loggerheads with one another and you can't find a way forward and you grieve that, what you're living out is the effect of the fall. It's not supposed to be like that. And deep down you cry out, it shouldn't be like this. And you're absolutely right to cry that out. But actually, why is it like this? It's actually because the world's broken. And sometimes you see it in yourselves. And in sexual area, we're all broken. It's kind of like one of the most liberating things that we can tell one another is, do you know what? You're probably not tempted in any way that others of us have not been also tempted with. Those of you that are happily married, you are not the only person that's ever wondered, I wonder what it would be like if I went off with someone else. You're not the only person that's thought that. Many of us have lived with that temptation. Because actually, it's not like you get it right and sorted and sussed. It's actually we're all broken. All redeemed, the redemption that Christ offers is to all, and the renewing and the recreating is a possibility and a real possibility in Christ. But one day we will be glorified and transformed, fully transformed, into all that we were ever designed to be. And we live in between those two events of redemption and glorification. So theologically, where do we stand? Why, if, and it's, it's this big question, if you hold to heterosexual is the norm, how do you explain that? Well, you explain it within a big picture, not out of six texts from the Bible that says God says don't do it. You see, actually, the bigger picture here. We're created for the other. I'm created for someone who's not like me. Physically, I'm created for someone like, not like me. Society needs <laughs> procreation. God delights in the other, not the same. But of course, when people are asking the question of us, often what they're not asking for is a theological response. What they're really asking for is, how do we help one another? What do we do with people? Because it's not really the issue. I think there's three things I'd want to say. There's pastorally, the truth is we live in these in-between times. And our task is to help one another grow as disciples of Jesus. Our task is to help one another see who we are in Christ. To know God and to know his purpose. My task is not to change you. And I kind of want to be really firm on this as a, a church leader and as part of our church. Our task is not to change one another. Our task is to create a community in which we might grow in Christ. You see, we can, we can try and change one another. And what will happen is one of two things I suggest. One is legalism. And one is we'll hide. Legalism or we'll hide. 
Our task is to be a community that goes, do you know what? This is a safe place for us to grow in Christ together. Someone wrote this week, they dreamt of a church. There's a context where everyone is safe and no one is comfortable. And a context where we can tell the truth about ourselves. And I kind of felt, yeah, I get that. Where everyone's safe, but no one's comfortable. And a place where we can tell the truth about ourselves. So if you hold to what many would call the traditional Orthodox Christian teaching, how do you help one of the pastorally? What you don't do is suddenly become the judge of someone else. What you do do is create a context in which all of us grow in Christ. In Hebrews, the writer said this, let's think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Sometimes it happens because our friends or even our family ask us the questions and sometimes they may, your adult children may end up in relationships that are same sex, they may invite you to same sex marriages, your friends might invite you to same sex marriages, etc., etc., etc. How do you respond then? How high are your barriers? We follow the one who, whose barriers were remarkably low and everybody criticized him for it. You know, we read so easily and we pass over, cause, and some of us who've been in church the longest pass over these texts so easily. He's the one, he's the friend of glutton and, sin, and sinners. Uh, drunkards, gluttons and sinners. Some people, that's just like a good night out. <laughs> Drunkards, gluttons, and sinners. And, and, and we read over it, and it's kind of like, yes, well. But can you see the criticism that the religious leaders were making of Jesus? Because what they were saying is, this man has no boundaries. What they were saying about Jesus is, this man has no principles. What they were saying is, this man doesn't know who he's with. And Jesus says everything opposite. The barriers are remarkably low. Do you love people more or do you love your principle more? Do you love people or do you love your principle more? And thirdly, do we have to agree on everything? My sister-in-law is not a Christian, and uh, she lives in Northern Ireland. And a few years ago, some of you will remember, there was a big uh, to-do, and it became a massive legal issue that went all the way through to Supreme Court about um, an ash, the Ashes Bakery, um, the, the baking company, uh, cake-making company, that was asked to um, produce a cake that was in support of um, same-sex marriage. And as Christians, they said, we don't want to do that. And uh, they were taken to court for discrimination, and uh, it went to appeal, and then it, it just sort of continued to go through the court system until eventually they were uh, exonerated. But it was a massive cost and a lot of um, turmoil. And Jill, 
uh, talked to me once when I was over there, and she, she's, she's very funny as Jill, and we talk very openly, but we disagree about lots. And she said, Neil, what are, are your lot playing at? That was her sort of her opening line over coffee, which is a really a classic way for me and Jill to begin a comment. What is your lot playing at now? And so we chatted about the situation. And, um, but what we ended up talking about was, what society, sort of society do we want? Do we want a society where actually we can disagree well? Or do we want a society where actually, on whatever side you stand, you can't disagree well? And I don't know about you, but I don't want to go back to some sort of Christendom where if you didn't fit, you were the outcast. But neither do I want to live in a world where political correctness means that if I'm a teacher, as happened two weeks ago, in another class, and in a girls, uh, an all-girls class said, morning girls, was then disciplined because unbeknownst to him or that the girl was thinking, was questioning her own identity. And so he was then sacked. Now, on the one hand, these are individual incidents. This is not the norm. It's individual incidents, and it's easy for us to blow them out of perspective. But I don't want to live in a world where people can't say what they think. I don't want to live in a world where even people who say awful things are not allowed to say what they think. I want to live in a world where we can actually disagree well and have the conversation. And that's a tricky balance to get. So when your friends or your family ask, would you, will you, will you be part of a blessing? Will you come? Will you be our friends? Will you stand with us? Those sort of questions begin to be quite important to me. If I might wonder whether I agree. In Romans, Paul writes, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. My last two points. Talked about pastorally, relationally, theologically. Publicly. I've talked about some of those cases, about cake makers, about teachers. If you... If you work and live in a system, then you've got to honor and love within the system. It's about all sorts of things, isn't it? It's about if you work in a context and they say to you, no, you're not allowed to wear any mark of religion. You either decide, okay, well, that's the context I'm going to work in and therefore I will take the cross off. Or you will decide to make a uh, carefully judged act of civil disobedience. But you've got to know that the battle is worth the fight. We're called to work within systems and we're called to honour and to love. At the same time, and this perhaps links to the thing I said about the conversation earlier, we work and we pray for a change of culture, an open culture, a culture where we can be honest. In Romans again, in, rather in 1 Peter, Peter writes, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honour the king. 
Perhaps you're not surprised by the brotherhood of believers, nor are you surprised by fear God. But honor the king is a problem when Peter is aware that it's the king of, in a context of Rome, that not only has crucified Jesus, but has persecuted the church. But you're called to work within that context. And then finally, missionally. How do we live in a way that we keep the main thing, the main thing? If we start building barriers about things too soon, or any time, actually, we stop people seeing the brilliance of Jesus. I worked for this group called LICC in London, and it was started by this guy called John Stott, who was a church leader in London in the 80s, 90s. And uh, last week I was reading a new book that's just been written called The Second Mountain by a, a journalist, a New York journalist called David Brooks. And this is a book that is on the New York best-selling list. And it's about how do you discover um, what your vocation is really uh, in the second half of life. And um, he's writing to a secular audience about how do you work out when you feel stuck what you're supposed to do next. It's part of a whole stack of reading I've been doing. And David Brooks, in the midst of this book, suddenly, you, you, so I'm just reading through it, and then um, he tells this story about John Stott. And he says, uh, in the 1990s, John Stott was on the front page of Time magazine as one of uh, culture's most important people. He was in the top 100 at that time. And uh, David Brooks, who was a New York journalist, was sent to interview him. And he told the story about meeting John Stott. And he said, I was there to interview this religious man. He said, I'm not a Christian, grew up Jewish. Not a, I'm not a Christian uh, at that time, he said. But I sat with him and he said, and two things became really apparent about John Stott. He said, I wanted to argue about a whole stack of things in the church at the time. But what John Stott did was he disarmed me with his joyfulness. And he talked about Jesus all the time. Whenever you're in a context, people want to talk about issues. What do you really want to talk about? To be honest, sometimes it's easier to talk about church and it's easier to talk about issues than it is to talk about Jesus. But actually, it's all about Jesus in the end. It's actually about him. Now, this isn't to say you don't have an opinion about any number of stuff. And remember, this morning is just one opinion on which we differ a whole stack amongst Christians. Just one issue. But what do you really want to make the focus of your conversation? The focus of the conversation, David Brooks said, was Jesus. He didn't become a Christian in 1994, but he went on to talk about how he did become a Christian 15 years later. But that conversation was crucial for him. This is the one who calls us. In the wider culture, the wider culture says... In this particular field, embrace fully, everything's okay. In some parts of the church, they go erase fully. You've just got to, you know, the, the awful phrase that's often used is pray the gay away. And I think neither of those are where I want to sit. Neither of those are where I want to sit. 
And the reason I don't, and I kind of have to, you know, you put all your cards on the table, you know, I'm white, middle-aged, male, heterosexual. But I've been really influenced by those who are white, male, homosexual, celibate church leaders who say, actually, will you make this life easier for us, not more difficult? Because we're choosing to live celibately because of our primary relationship with Jesus. Will you make this easier for us? So any homophobic tendency in me makes it more difficult for them. Any sense that God might heal you and you'd become suddenly remarkably attracted to the opposite sex suggests something about them that says you're not okay. But something that actually allows me to say, I want to know you. Because I think we're all here somewhere and they are saying, this is who we are, but it's not even our primary identity. Our primary identity is in Christ. We're trying to deal with this. I've been hugely influenced by those people. And if you go on the websites, you can see their stories and they're very moving and very um, realistic, very authentic. They're not quick. They're not easy fixers. It's not glib. I don't know how helpful this is, but let me finish with this. Ultimately, to follow Jesus means that we will be awkwardly out of step with society. Ultimately, to follow Jesus is not to have easy answers. It's not to dig yourself into a sectarian hole. Nor is it to simply embrace culture as culture keeps changing so very quickly. It's actually for us to be a community who will have the difficult conversations, who will love, who are people who will have principles, but people who know how to articulate them rationally and carefully and lovingly. I wonder at the end of the day whether the thing that's broken in all of us most deeply is, am I okay? Am I okay? And if you knew me, if you really knew me, would you really think I'm okay? And I think that ultimately that's the brokenness that's at the deep depths of all of us. Am I okay? Am I lovable? Am I lovable or do I have to pretend to be something else? And in Christ and in the cross, we see a God who said, I love you. I'm done. I thought quite hard about the next piece of this, um, but rather than just sort of open up now, um, I felt it was right to sort of create a space in which if there are questions and debate or just you want to come back, then there's a space to do that. So what I'm going to do is, um, at the end of the service, I'm just going to hang around a bit and we'll take one of the sides or wherever we need.
But if there's a conversation that you want to have and you want to just say, can I ask you some questions? We'll do it then. But let's pray.